Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Good morning, church. He is good, amen? All right. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 8, we're continuing through our series in the book of Acts, but we're doing a mini-series right here at Easter uh, called Radiant Reminders of the Resurrection, and this is Palm Sunday. We didn't have any palm branches. It was too wet to gather those, but uh, it is Palm Sunday, which means this is the start of Passion Week, and Passion uh, in the Greek Latin translation means to suffer, and so Jesus Christ, as we know, suffered on our behalf, and as we get closer to Friday, I want to invite you to come and be a part of worship Friday night as we have an intimate time of worship, and uh, it's a very uh, pared-back uh, worship service because it's a time of reflection. It's a time where we read scripture, we read the account of the crucifixion together, we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf together, and then we, we sing songs of praise and we look forward together again on Sunday for Easter Sunday for the resurrection. Amen. And so I want to invite you to be a part of that. Also, Easter, we have two services. Uh, we're going to provide an 830 service and a 1030 service. So that way, uh, there's plenty of room for everybody and plenty of room for you to bring a friend. Uh, and so as we look to Good Friday, I want to give you a quote from J.C. Riley that says, there's more to be learned at the foot of the cross than anywhere else in the world. If we come to the cross and we come to the foot of the cross and we humble ourselves and we bow before the cross of Jesus Christ, he teaches us so much about his love, so much about his grace, so much about his mercy and his kindness and his patience with us. But he also teaches us so much about our sin and the severity of sin that's in our life. And just how helpless and hopeless we are without Jesus Christ coming and paying the penalty of our sins. There's so much to be learned as we read through the account of the crucifixion. But this morning we're in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is we're making our way through. And you're turning there. I want to tell you a story of a, a story that I read this week by Erwin Lutzer with the Moody Bible Institute. He says the date was Wednesday, April the 10th, 1912. And the world watches in awe as the glamorous Titanic begins her maiden voyage. But little did the world know that the great ship, man-made, would be at the bottom of the Atlantic some four days later. And on that ship, in the second-class section, was a man by the name of John Harper. John Harper was coming to America to preach at Moody Church. If you had been with John Harper on the Titanic that faithful, or that faithful night, you would have felt a tremendous jolt when the mighty ship collided with the iceberg on the starboard side. You would have heard the whole plates buckling as the iceberg put a 300-foot-long gash in the side of the ship. And you may have heard the panic of the captain's voice when he knew the ship was sinking and he only had enough lifeboats for half of the passengers. If you've seen the movie, this seems rather familiar, right? Okay, good. Uh, the captain also knew that in order to keep the 2,227 people on board calm, he needed to ask John Harper to remain on deck to keep peace with the passengers. If you had been on deck, you'd have seen families torn apart, husbands saying goodbye as they watched their wives and children leave in lifeboats, wives deciding to stay on board to die with their husbands, children's wave, children waving goodbye to their parents and praying that they would see each other again. You'd have seen John Harper kiss his six-year-old daughter say goodbye to her and put her in a lifeboat. As the minutes crept by and all the lifeboats were gone, 
1,521 people were left on board the sinking ship, including Harper. With every minute that passed, the deck seemed to get steeper and steeper, and the bow plunged underneath the water. Finally, the ship broke into two parts, hurling the remaining passengers into the icy depths of the Atlantic. It is said that the ship blinked its lights once and then went out, leaving everyone to freeze in utter darkness. And within a few, as the few hundred lifeboats were there, they could see their husbands, they could see their fathers, they could see their other family members shrieking in terror and thrashing in the water to try to grasp for a breath. But during this horrific tragedy, God was at work. You see, Harper wasn't afraid to die. He knew that he was going to come face to face, face with his maker, and he wanted people to know his Lord and Savior. So as death was lurking over him, Harper yelled out to a man in the darkness, Are you saved? No, he replied. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Harper screamed as he struggled in the dark, cold Atlantic. Then the men drifted apart into the darkness. But later, the current brought them back together, weak, exhausted, and frozen. A dying Harper yelled once again, Are you saved? No, the man replied. Harper once again said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And with that, Harper slipped down into his watery grave. Harper had sacrificed his own life so he could share the plan of salvation. The man whom Harper sought to win to Christ was rescued by the SS Carpathia. Because of Harper, he decided his life, he decided to dedicate his life to Jesus Christ right there, two miles above the ocean floor. And he lived to tell everyone that he was Harper's last convert. You see, the story of the Titanic is a tragic story, but God was at work. God was still in the midst of those people saving souls in the cold waters of the Atlantic. Tony Morita says it this way, have you ever considered that even in your promotions, your demotions, your setbacks, God has sovereignly ordained and allowed twists and turns in your life to give you an opportunity to preach the gospel to your friends, your neighbors, and your acquaintances? The Lord has arranged opportunities for you to share Jesus in word, and to exemplify that message with your deeds to your friends and your colleagues? Church, have you ever thought about that even in the worst of times, that God is directing your path to come into the path of others who desperately need to know about Jesus Christ? That's the story of Harper. Harper on the Titanic, he took the moment of a tragedy to preach Jesus Christ to those who are dying, literally dying. We're to take the opportunities that we have with our redeemed life to preach Jesus Christ to those who are perishing, who are without hope. In fact, the sole purpose of a redeemed life as a believer is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are dying. That means that we were redeemed with a purpose. And the purpose should be that the voice, that our voice should be used to proclaim Jesus Christ to all who are perishing. Billy Graham once said this, God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. Church, I tell you this to, to tell you that there are people in your path this week that God has placed there for you to proclaim the gospel. 
You sit maybe in a cubicle or you work in a certain area of your building and you are surrounded by people day in and day out who desperately need to be asked the question, are you saved? You live in a family or you live in a neighborhood or you live in a community or you live in a zip code and you're surrounded by people day in and day out that God has sovereignly placed in your path, even in times of tragic circumstances, for us to see what really matters and it's that Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Now, this is where we pick up in the, in, in the story of Acts. Stephen has just been stoned. There has been a murder because he's proclaiming the gospel. Now the church is beginning to, to spread out. They're beginning to go all over the place because persecution has hit. And in the midst of this tragedy, Christ is proclaimed. This is what Christ does with his church. He uses his church to further the gospel. Let's pray and we'll jump in. To Acts chapter 8. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the testimonies that we even read about, how people were faithful in the midst of tragedy like Harper to proclaim the good news. Father, help us not to be so swept away by good times and pro- your protection and your providence, Lord, that we, forget, that we fail to tell people about your goodness and your love. God, give us a heart for those who are lost. Give us a burning desire to proclaim the good news. God, speak to us today through your word and lead and guide us into all truth. In Christ's name, amen. First thing we see is the resurrection reminds us that Christ died and rose to save all peoples. Christ died and rose to save all peoples. There, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. So here's, here's Saul. We'll get to him next week. We'll talk about him. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This section begins with Saul. Saul approved of his execution. The word approved there actually means uh, to applaud or to be pleased with. Now think about how the persecution has, has crept up over the last few chapters. You know, we, we get thrown in the prison. We're told not to talk. We're, the apostles are being persecuted and persecuted and they got whipped and they were flogged. And now there's an execution. There's a stoning of Stephen. And the one who is standing over this stoning of Stephen is applauding it. He's approving of the persecution. And how does the church respond? The church goes out preaching the word. They don't shriek in fear. They don't hide. They go out and they proclaim Jesus Christ. In fact, in the midst of bad news, there's always better news. There's always the good news. That would be the story of Harper from the Titanic. In the midst of bad news, there's always better news, and it's the good news. And even though we, we face bad situations and tragic situations, there's always a better news. There's always good news. Steve Lawson says this, when persecution comes, it will separate the wheat from the tares, the true church from the false church. 
Here in Acts, we see the true church rise up in the midst of persecution. And what do they do? Verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What did the true church do? They went about being witnesses. They preached the word as one guy, Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, he said, they gossiped the gospel. I love that. They gossiped the gospel. Oh, let me tell you, oh, have you heard this? Let me tell you, oh, let me, there's something, this is juicy right here. Let me tell you what's going on. All right, so he says this, this must have not been a formal preaching, but an informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes, in wine shops, in walks, and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel, and they did it, get this, naturally. They did it naturally. They couldn't help but gossip the gospel. They did it enthusiastically and with conviction, he says. This is how the church today should respond in times of persecution when the culture seems to be closing in on the church. We should respond as people who go out gossiping the gospel because we can't keep our mouths shut because there are people who are lost and dying who desperately need to hear the good news in bad times. This is how the church responds today. We should be gospers of the gospel. We should bring up Christ in our everyday conversations, in our everyday chatter in the stores, in the hair salons, and at school, at work, and in coffee shops, in casual conversations. As you come into contact with those that God has placed within your path, it's a sovereign act of God to put you there so you will proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And you can do it without preaching like me. You can do it in casual conversation. You just can't help but chatter about Jesus. Amen? The church needs to be the true church, just like in Acts. The true church, though scattered, is never silent. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. What happens here is that Luke begins to focus in on Philip just as he, as he focused in on Stephen in the previous chapter. He's focusing in on Philip, who later is referred to as Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21.8. This is a guy who was chosen out of the church. He was a normal church member who, who was commissioned, who was sent out, and just couldn't stop talking about Jesus. He was so full of the Holy Spirit that he just talked about Jesus everywhere he went. And where did he go? He went to Samaria. Samaria, really? This fulfills Acts 1.8. As we see, Acts 1.8, Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. It took the persecution of Stephen to push them out of the area they were comfortable in into other areas like Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As we see with the conversion of Saul to Paul that Paul is going to begin to preach the gospel to the pagan Gentiles, and so it is going to go into all of the earth. Well, the gospel reached Samaria. Samaria, you might know, was considered unclean by the Jews. It was a place that had been intermarried. About 750 years before this, the Assyrians conquered the northern area of Israel, and they deported all the wealthy and all the middle-class Jews. They they deported them and they kept the low-income people there and they began to intermarry and they began to change the way they worshiped God and their religious practices. And so generally speaking, Jews hated the Samaritans. They actually used Samaritans as a bad word. They considered them to be compromising um, half-breeds who corrupted the worship of their true God. And so they had such disdain for them 
there is a deep-seated, get this, racial and religious prejudice against them. There was a racial and religious prejudice against these people. A racial and religious worldview is not a gospel-centered worldview. A racial and religious worldview is not a Christ-centered worldview. It's not how Christ viewed the Samaritans. Do you remember how Christ viewed the Samaritans? John chapter four, the woman at the well, he goes and he sits there and he talks to her and he offers her eternal life and he tells her everything that she ever did. And it ends like this in John chapter four, 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came, they asked him, they asked him to stay with them. And so he stayed there for two days. Jesus shows no racial or religious prejudice. He actually stays with them for two days. He makes that a place where he wants to be. And the reason this is a Christ-centered view is because everyone needs Jesus. Do you believe that? Everyone. Everyone needs Jesus. Who cares if they don't fit into your little bubble? Who cares if you don't have things in common with them? Who cares if you're repulsed by their actions? Everyone needs Jesus. And the church is called to proclaim him without prejudice, without racial or religious discrimination. The church is called to preach Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ alone saves us. Everyone needs Jesus Pastor Stephen Cole, he says this. This teaches us two things. First, God wants to reach all people, even those whom you may not naturally like. We have to drop any prejudice that might cling to us and see every person from every race, every culture as a candidate for the gospel. People you may not like need Christ. Can I just say that line again? People you may not like need Christ. Now, don't raise your hand. Anybody, anybody have somebody you don't like in your life? Good, I'm glad you didn't raise your hand. They need Christ. And they need to be shown in word and deed the love of Christ from his church. Amen? This is tough. He goes on to say, homosexuals need Christ. And he has the power to save them. Militant atheists need Christ. And he can save them. People of other races need Christ. And one day he will have people from every single people group worshiping around his throne. Everyone needs Christ. Secondly, while we may need to be sensitive to certain cultural differences, it teaches us this, we don't change the message to fit different cultures. Philip just went and proclaimed Christ. The message is this. It's the same message. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. And your only hope is Jesus. That's the message. The reason we proclaim him to everyone is this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There's a lot of people who are deceived these days. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this verse. And such were some of you. 
at one point in your life, you were that somebody who needed Jesus. You needed someone to tell you about him because such were some of you. Were. We no longer engage in those things willfully because Christ has changed us. It doesn't mean that we aren't tempted in those ways. It doesn't mean that we don't have skeletons in our closet from those days. It doesn't mean that we don't carry guilt and hurt and pain from those days. What it means is that we were like that one day. But, here it is, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. Who do you know that needs to hear about Jesus this week, church? You know, it's a perfect opportunity. Easter's right around the corner. It might come up in normal conversation. You might chatter the gossip. You might gossip the gospel this, this week. You might chatter about Jesus this week. Who do you know that needs a, re, a radiant reminder of his resurrection? Who do you know in your life right now who is living in sin? Who, apart from Christ, will die and go to hell? who will not inherit the kingdom of God, as such were some of you. I heard a pastor, I gotta, I gotta shift gears, or I'm gonna just keep crying, okay? So let's shift gears. I heard a pastor preach a message called Mission 555, and I don't know where he got 555, but I liked it, so I stole it, and I'm gonna change it to Mission 423, because that's our area code, okay? There's nothing new under the sun, just read Ecclesiastes. Here we go. Mission 423. Here's an application for this week. If you are burdened for those in your life, here's your application. Focus on four. Four people you know need Jesus. Can you think of four people in your life from two circles of your life, your vocation and your personal life? Can you identify four people in two circles of your life? And can you this week find three ways to communicate the gospel to them? Four people from two circles of your life that you can communicate three different ways. You can pray for them on the spot. You can invite them to church. You can find a way to serve them intentionally, which leads to an opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ. Four people from two circles of your life that you're gonna find three ways to share with them the gospel. This was what the true church did during persecution. Second point, I need a, I, I should wear a mask. I gotta wipe my nose. Second point, the resurrection reminds us that Christ makes us new creations. Starting there in verse 9, Acts chapter 8. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now let me stop right there, because it's really easy for us 
to interpret Scripture denominationally and not biblically, okay, because of how we were raised. So let me just stop right there because this is a, this is a somewhat confusing section of Scripture. We must remind ourselves of what Luke is doing. Luke is a historian. Luke is writing the book of Acts to give the historical account of how Jesus Christ forms his church in the early church. He's giving us a detailed account of what took place and how the church spread from Jerusalem to Samaria. And so this is what he's saying. The Samaritans hear the gospel. They believe. They're baptized in their obedience just as Jesus had commissioned. But what happened in Acts 2 happens again so that there's a clarification that this is a salvation from God. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came and fell on the believers in Jerusalem. And now here we see that the Holy Spirit comes and falls on the Samaritan believers as evidence of a true conversion, that Jesus Christ himself, God is establishing his church. The apostles then come and their presence is the role of mediators. They come and they give credibility to what is taking place so that no one can question whether or not this is a true conversion of the Samaritans. Even the apostles come and they're like, this is it. God is saving even the Samaritans. He's saving all peoples. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 say this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of the inheritance until we acquire possession of it. When we believe, when there's a salvation that takes place, God makes us a new creation. Salvation is done by God and it's proven by the, the Holy Spirit being promised to us. So this second outpouring of the Holy Spirit was to show the salvation was not only for the Jews, but also for Gentiles and Samarians alike. So verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the Greek actually says there, but it's pretty straightforward in what the Greek says. So you and your money, you can go somewhere. Is basically what it says. Verse uh, 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, here's what Luke does. He highlights a certain man, a certain man that was there who had magic, who had the people thinking that he was powerful. He highlights this man named Simon, and this man, Simon, he believed, according to Scripture. He had been baptized, according to Scripture, and he had even joined Philip and followed him, according to Scripture. So, in all practical terms... This man intellectually and physically appears to be a follower of Jesus Christ. However, the apostles point out one major flaw, his heart. You see, you can follow God in intellectual belief and even with physical obedience, but God looks at the heart. Now, Simon, verse 18, 
saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands by the apostles, and he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This man doesn't want Christ. He wants power. Simon's issue was a heart issue. Simon believed. Simon was baptized. Simon was a follower. He was following Philip. You know what the problem, though, was? Simon wasn't saved. Most commentators believe that because Lord, the Lord Jesus was not Lord of his life. He was still Lord of his life. He still wanted the power. He still wanted the prestige. Salvation is God's work of regeneration in the life of a believer, not our work, not our work of recognition. Not just us recognizing that God is Lord. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. But it's the regeneration of the heart. If you're a new creation, you have a new heart. If you, have, if you don't have a new heart, if God hasn't changed you, if there's not been a regeneration, then maybe you're not fully a believer. So many confessing Christians are like a Simon. They need to recognize, we need to recognize just simply because people claim to be a Christian, they were baptized, they come to church and they follow all the rules does not mean that their hearts are God's. Jesus would even say this in Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The difference between this belief that Simon had and true faith is that true faith requires true surrender. I've heard it said many times, you can believe the chair will hold you up, but faith is when you put yourself in the chair. A lot of people believe that Jesus Christ can save, but they haven't fully given their whole heart and life to Jesus Christ for their salvation. There's a difference in how you approach the chair. There's a difference in how you approach Christ. Many approach Christ with an intellectual agreement. But for salvation, we have to approach Christ with a sacrificial surrender. Many approach Christ with an intellectual agreement. But we need to approach Christ with a sacrificial surrender. James McGovery Boyce observed this. He says, when Peter says, you have no part or share in this ministry, it is interesting that he is employing the same words Jesus used when Peter had objected of Jesus washing his feet. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, John 13, 8. What Jesus is saying and what Peter is saying are virtually the same thing. Unless you're all in, you're not in at all. Unless he has your whole heart, he doesn't have any of your heart. Simon is clearly this person. Let me ask you, how do you approach Christ today? Has he revealed that there's areas of your heart that are holding on to sin, that are deceived? Repent, verse 22. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. You know, really, we can ask for forgiveness. We can ask for forgiveness. We can tell God we're sorry over and over and over and over. But what we really need is for him to change our hearts. Because if he doesn't change our hearts, we'll continue in the same pattern of asking for forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness and I'm sorry and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Repentance is actually to turn, to have a change of mind, to hate sin. 
he says to Simon, you need to hate sin. You need to hate it. You see, as a believer, we either live in constant war on sin or we live in willful sin. There's no middle ground. As a believer, you either live in constant war on sin or you live in willful sin. There is no middle ground. And the only way to live in a constant war on sin is to live a life of repentance. To live a life that examines your heart. Lastly, number three. The resurrection reminds us that Christ is magnified in our obedience. He's magnified in our obedience. Verse 26 Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and as he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before the shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is where it begins. He is led by the spirit in obedience. And he gets up and he goes. Albert Muller says this, if you truly embrace the gospel and determine to follow after Jesus, you will find yourself going where you never thought you'd go and doing something you never thought you'd do. Obedience to the gospel often requires us to obey in unexpected ways. You get up and go to this desert place. This is a remarkable story. I love this story. You go to this desert place and you're going to find an Ethiopian eunuch reading the prophet Isaiah out loud. Back in those days, they didn't read in their head. They all read out loud. Maybe we should start doing that, right? Just go somewhere and start reading the Bible out loud, see what happens. So Philip goes in obedience and he goes to this place and he finds this man who's an Ethiopian eunuch who had gone to Jerusalem to worship. But if he's an, if he's a Gentile and if he's a eunuch, then he couldn't fully go in and worship. He had to stand on the outer Gentile territory. And he had to stand there and he could watch worship, but he couldn't really participate in worship because he was unclean. And now he's heading back and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 12 through 15, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Philip was the man who had beautiful feet in this occasion. He goes and he shares with this Ethiopian, verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, ran to him. 
Here's a simple question for us. When God tells us to be obedient, do you run towards obedience or do you run from obedience? Do you run towards obedience? Do you meander towards obedience? Do you slothfully drag one leg towards obedience? Or do you, do you run? He ran towards obedience. There's two types of obedience. We talked about this on Wednesday night in our prayer meeting. There's simple obedience and there's complicated obedience. Simple obedience is doing what you know God's word clearly tells you to do. There are simple things that we can read from God's word and we can know exactly what the will of God is for us. We are called to share Christ. It's a clear command. We are to be a witness for him. We're to go and proclaim that. We're to be those who flee from sin, who run from sin, and we're to be those who identify ourselves with Christ through baptism, which is what we're going to get to in just a second. Simple obedience. But most of the time, we want to know complicated or complex obedience. We want to know how to decipher God's will with a biblical worldview and through a lens of Scripture. We want to know how to make decisions. We want to know what job to take, what educational path to have. We want to know what we're supposed to do in this situation and this situation. And so we're looking for answers in the gray area when we're not willing to follow God in the black and white areas. How do you expect to ever follow God in the complex obedience if you're not running towards simple obedience? Church, I challenge you today, if God's calling you to do something, run towards that. Don't meander. Don't drag a leg. Don't slowly go towards it. Run towards obedience. Two examples of obedience here are listed right here in Scripture. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. He opened the Scriptures. It was right there. The words of Isaiah proclaiming Jesus Christ as a suffering servant, the lamb who was slain, the one that we're going to read about on Good Friday, the one who was silent, who took the pain and the punishment of us all. And so he begins with Scripture, and he begins to point out Jesus Christ. For many of us this week, we need to be obedient by opening up our mouth and using Scripture to tell Jesus to those who desperately need to hear it. Second thing is this, verse 36 And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Isaiah's account does not tell him to be baptized. That was commissioned by Jesus Christ. So Philip takes the words of Christ. He uses the scriptures of the Old Testament. He says, look, look. You might be an Ethiopian eunuch, but you can be identified with Christ through the simple obedience of baptism. And he says, what's stopping me? Right there's water. And I want to be identified with Christ. I want to be brought into a family. I want to be born again. I want to be made new. I want a regeneration of the heart to take place. And I want everyone to know it. In fact, if he were to keep reading Isaiah and he got to chapter 56... It says this, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that they shall not be cut off. Hey, for the good, the good news for the eunuch was, 
you can be brought into a family. You can be brought in, identified with Christ. That's good news. Even in the midst of bad news, there's good news. There's great news. It's Jesus Christ. So as we close, let me ask you this. Is your life marked by obedience? Have you followed the Lord in believer's baptism? If you haven't and you want to talk more about that, I'm going to wait right down front here at the end of service. I'm not going to go out like I normally do. I'm going to stand right here. Please come talk to me. Have you opened up your mouth this week in obedience when God led you to share him with someone? Let me ask you, when God puts someone in your path this week, will you identify that person and open up your mouth and use the scriptures to to proclaim Christ? Let me ask you, as you look at these scriptures and you look at Simon and you think about his heart, have you given Christ your whole heart this week? Is there sin in your life that needs to be repented of? He changes us from the inside out. He's a good God. He's worthy to be worshiped and praised and exalted and proclaimed to all people groups, even the ones we don't particularly like. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.